Excellent. If you uh, are still with us and you've got a Bible, it'd be great if you could turn to Genesis 41. It's our first ever International Sunday. Great to be stirred about the nations. Thank you for the quiz, son. Great to see so many people here dressed up and people praying out in different languages. Uh, in some respect, we've got the flags and we're going to be doing something of that straight after that I preach. I'm going to preach for about 25 minutes, I think. And then we should be moving around and praying for some of the nations that are here. It's funny because you talk about a nation, but actually how many nations are there? That can feel like a trick question. When I Googled it, there were many different answers. Obviously, it's a, one common number has come up is 196. But obviously, I guess it depends how Scotland votes. There could be another one there. But there are other nations as well that people think, are they quite a nation? Are they not? If you define a nation as an ethnic group with a common language and common tradition, there are over 11,000 nations. And of these, 1,600 are totally unreached by the gospel. There are over 7,000 languages in the world today that do not have the New Testament. And they reckon there's between 1.2 and 1.4 billion people that have never heard the gospel. And so I think, uh, I'm hoping that we'll get the nations on our heart and be inspired by that. Uh, and we're going to read a, a story from the Old Testament, Genesis 41. And I'm going to read from verse 41 to 57. Just a little bit of background before I get into that. This is the story of Joseph. I don't know if you've seen the musical, heard the story, read about it at school. It's totally new to you. He was a guy that I guess about a teenager had a, had a dream. And he had a dream that these, uh, the sun and moon and stars bowed down to him. And, and then these sheaves of corn bowed down to him in the field. And, and they thought, oh, you're mad. And really, it was God saying something's going to happen. And his brothers hated him for it. They sold him as a slave. They were going to kill him. Decided to sell him as a slave. He ends up working for this guy. Does a good job. His wife gets the hots for him. He, he then gets thrown into prison because he won't sleep with the boss's wife. Whilst in prison, he interprets two dreams. Not he, God gives him the interpretation. One of the guys is killed in three days, one of them is restored to his job. And he said, look, if you get your job, remember me. The guy forgets him. Two years later, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, has a dream. And he thinks, oh, who can help? And suddenly the guy remembers his forgotten promise and thinks, I know there is a guy that can solve that. So basically, Joseph is rushed from prison into the court of Pharaoh. He says, what's the dream? He said, I understand you can interpret them. He says, no, I haven't got a clue. He says, but I do know God who can. And so then he gives the interpretation of the dream. And basically, this was seven fat cows and seven thin ones, if you know the song. You know what I'm saying? Basically, there's going to be seven good years, and then it's going to be seven really lean, bad years. And that's all happened. And then we get to this. Joseph in charge of Egypt, it says. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. I need someone basically to manage my country for 14 years while this dream comes true. Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger. That obviously gave him some authority. He dressed him in robes of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. He had him ride in a chariot as his second in command, and men shouted before him, Make way! Thus he put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, but without your word, no one would lift hand or foot in all Egypt. Pharaoh gave Joseph the name Zephaniah, and gave him Asenath, daughter of Pot. 
Now, I'm not quite sure why that's important. No, I am actually. It's politics. Who you're married to. No, no, this was true in those society. Basically, they think that that family were very high up in the courts at the time. And if you married into that family, that would help Joseph. Priest of On to be his wife. And Joseph went throughout the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from Pharaoh's presence and traveled throughout Egypt. During the seven years of abundance, this was the dream that he interpreted, it came true, the land produced plentifully. Joseph collected all the food produced in those seven years of abundance in Egypt and stored it in the cities. In each city, he put the, growth, the food grown in the fields surrounding it. Joseph stored up huge quantities of grain, like sand of the sea. It was so much that he stopped keeping records because it was beyond measure. Before the years of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph by this daughter of the priest. Joseph named his firstborn Manasseh and said, it's because God has made me forget all my trouble. I told you that he'd left his own country, been sold by his own family, and, and all my father's household. The second son he named Ephraim and said, it's because God has made me fruitful in the land of my sufferings. The seven years of abundance in Egypt came to an end, just like he'd said from the dream. And seven years of famine began, just as Joseph had said. There was famine in all the other lands, but in the whole land of Egypt, there was food. When all Egypt began to feel the famine, the people cried to Pharaoh for food. Pharaoh told the Egyptians, go to Joseph and do what he tells you. When the famine had spread over the whole country, Joseph opened the storehouses and sold grain to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe throughout Egypt. And all the countries came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe in all the world. I think we've got this sort of massive story, and I'd, I'd just quite like to have a quick look at the story and then try and work out how does that apply to us. I think this man, Joseph, was in a thrilling and exciting times. This is a massive, moving story. But I think before we even think about the excitement of it, we've got to probably realize there was a huge cost to it. You see, he'd been through huge people pressure to get to this point. If you think about this guy, you know, he, his family had laughed at him. People that he worked for in a hostile country were, were critical of him. And, and, and we think, oh, good, good guy Joseph, you did well. I doubt if the people in Egypt were saying, good guy Joseph. He basically introduced 20% tax is what we're thinking, isn't it? You know, you're doing really well, I'll take 20% of that. You're doing really well, I'll take that. He was storing this. I didn't think for Joseph this was an easy situation. I think if we're going to do great things for God, I don't think it's always going to be easy. I think for Joseph this would be quite tough. I mean, let's be honest, he was 30 and he was traveling. The work would have been busy. I bet he'd rather have been at home. He's got two kids, for goodness sake. I wonder even what he was thinking. Do you have those dark moments? I mean, Joseph, if he, if he just stopped and paused for a moment, he would have thought, why on earth am I helping this country? They left me in prison. I'm an ex-convict. But there was something about the call of God upon his life. It's almost like he couldn't resist this task that he's given. So we look at the man Joseph, and, and then we can look at the storehouses. There's many things that I could go into about this. We learn, uh, it says words there like abundance, plentiful, local to fields, huge quantities, sand of the sea, stopped keeping re records beyond measure. 
you just you, you, you try and get this picture of what's the biggest storehouse you could think of. I, I don't know. You know what I'm saying? The, the danger is that whatever we think of, we think of something bigger. I think of my kids. Think of the first time you took your kids to the cinema and you just give them a bag and say, you can help yourself off any of that pick and mix. You know what I'm saying? Their eyes just go like that. Don't they just think, what? You know what I'm saying? It's, it's, and, and that's just small, isn't it, compared to what we're trying to describe here. I tell you, I believe that the storehouse is a picture of the church. And I believe that God has put loads in the church. I believe that actually, if you think about the church, we've been singing this morning that we're, we're saved, not because of what we've done, but because of the death of Jesus. That's massive, isn't it? I, I'll be honest, every time I come in and they kick off a song and you realize the truth, you just think, this blows my mind. God, what you have done for me. I think about the fact that I don't have to carry my guilt for the past, but it, I'm forgiven. I mean, that's put into the storehouse of the church. I'm, I'm accepted not by the suit that I wear to preach in. I'm accepted because of the grace of God upon my life. There's a place reserved for me in heaven, not because I've done anything, but because Jesus died in my place. I think these are some, there's an inheritance the Bible talks about that will never spoil or fail. Why? Because of what God has done. That, to me, is the church, is the storehouse. I believe that God has invested so much in the church. I believe that we have the word. I believe that the Holy Spirit leads us. I believe that we'd be baptized in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. I believe that there's deliverance for people today. I believe there's signs and wonders that happen. I believe there's a heart for the poor. Why? Because God has put stuff in his church, the storehouse. And then I would say this story gives me one other thing that I would say. There's a universal need. You see, the thing I love about this is it's so visual. So easy to see, isn't it? It says in verse 13, there was no food, however, in the whole region because the famine was severe. Both Egypt and Canaan wasted away because of the famine. People were literally starving to death. Physically. They had no hope because what they planted did not grow. What they planned did not happen. What they dreamed of did not occur. There was no hope for these people. There was no pretending for these people. They couldn't just think, oh, I'm all right. You know what I'm saying? They were hungry. They were starving. There wasn't like, you know, a, a food bank in the area at the time that could just help them out for a few days. There wasn't a Tesco's that you could just order on your credit card and it delivered. They were starving. There was no possibility of denying the drastic need they were in. There was no other option for help. Beg, borrow, steal from each other. There's no neighbours to turn to. There was no one that wasn't affected by this famine. The famine affected you whether you're a slave or a landowner, whether you were young, whether you're old, whether you're married, whether you're single. Everyone was caught up in this. And I would say, we live in a time where actually, I believe there's a famine of sin in our nation. Oh God, that's a bit old-fashioned, but don't spoil it. We've had such a nice morning. Let's clap and dance again. I genuinely think this is a picture of what is happening. I genuinely think that people are robbed of guilt, robbed of security, robbed of identity, robbed of hope. I think there's a famine there. Okay, we might parade around the car or a holiday or, you know, an experience, but actually inside, there's this desperate need. And then I think that this is then a picture for us. Now, you might say, Pete, you're reading quite a bit into a story about Joseph. I mean, you know, we like the story. 
You see, I think what happened is the nations, it said, came to Egypt to get the food. You see, I believe that there's a picture here which we could expand and think actually the nations will come and get the food. They will come and get the gospel, the good news. I believe this is what a picture of, of what's going on. Joseph was basically called to bless the nations. Now, I think the thing that we have to learn when dealing with the Bible is that, you know, we can't just jump right in and think, how can I read as much as I possibly can into one verse? Often we've got to jump out and think, what's the big story? And so I think that this is a picture, but actually if I zoom out and see the big story of the Bible, I think it just backs this up. You see, if you know the Bible, you know Abraham, in Genesis 12, right there at the the first book of the Bible, God makes a promise. He chooses him. Abraham, in Genesis 12, verse 3, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. You see, Abraham, as this sort of father figure, right at the beginning of the Old Testament, was actually called to be a blessing to the nations. See, if, if you know the story, sin had come in and divided nations. Basically, they tried to build this tower, and it was sin, and it was selfishness, and it was pride. And the Bible says that then God divided. But actually, then he said, actually, I will choose a man. I will choose a people that will then be a blessing to the nations. And that's what Abraham was called to be. Genesis 18, it goes on to say, Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. We know that that affected the way he lived. Lot and his family, I might define them as a nation under my thing there, he went and rescued because they were in trouble. When the angels came past him and said, actually, I'm about to destroy this city, he interceded. Abraham was caught up and, and stirred in the way he prayed and behaved about the nations. Now, I think if we then think of the big picture, it doesn't just stay with Abraham. I think, actually, it stays with Israel. You see, the theme of the nations continues to rumble right through the story of the Bible. When God is building his relationship with his people, actually, if you think, what does he call them? Well, it tells us in Exodus 19, he calls them a nation of priests. Well, if you think about the role of a priest, it was actually to intercede on behalf of others. And actually, the, the, the Israelites, it wasn't just, oh, we're a nice special people and we all hang out in the desert and we've got these nice rules that make us nice. It was you to be a nation intercede for the nations. That was always the command of God for the Israelites. You know, I don't want this church just to be, oh, well, uh, Peter, we just be being PC at the moment. We're trying to get all nations together. No, I'm trying to say we're trying to be biblical. Because I think there was this biblical thing. The nations will be blessed through us. It says in Deuteronomy 10 verse 19, this was writing to the Israelites, and you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. You see, they were to care for the poor and those that were new to the nation because this was something of demonstrating the people of God. I would love to think that if you're new to England and you move into Ealing, you feel welcomed by the church. And when I chat to some people, they say, oh, you don't know what it's like, Pete. You haven't heard that. I'd hate to think you've ever not felt welcomed by the church. Even if you think outside, people have said, oh, they, you know, you feel like cold-shouldered, not interested, don't understand culture. I think surely the church is a place where we say, we welcome you. Because that is the picture of what it's meant to be. 
I think even, and we haven't got time to go through it this morning, but you look at the kings, there was a sort of sense of, the kings were there to bless the nation. Solomon, I would say, surely, you know, one of the greatest kings there was, there was a sense of nations coming to him for wisdom. They were amazed by his treasure. He blessed them. I think that's a picture of the church. I think the prophets were a picture to the church. They were saying, actually, you've got to understand that we're to be a nation that bless the ends of the earth. Isaiah says, it's too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob. I.e., don't just think about a small bunch. And bring back those of Israel I've kept. I will make you, Isaiah says, a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation would reach to the ends of the earth. And so when I think about, oh, we want to have an international Sunday, it's not, oh, well, actually, could we... I mean, let's be honest, singing one of those songs and clapping is too hard for me. I mean, dancing without singing or clapping, I just can't get the square. You think, oh, golly, this is just humiliating. Let's go back to the old 80s shuffle that we normally do on a Sunday morning. You know, I think, no, come on, actually, why do we do this? Because we're something about the nations. It's almost, this is, this is what God has put into us. We mustn't think almost like the Israelites, oh, we've just become a small little nice club. We genuinely are here for the nations. And otherwise, what we do is we think about, oh, I've got a small group that meets on a Wednesday night, and we have a really nice time together. I want to build community, but I'm preaching the nations this morning. You know what I'm saying? And actually, I think if you're first time here, you're welcome. If you're from a different nationality, we love having you here. Because I think this is something about who the people of God are. So I think we see it in Abraham. We could see it in Israel. We can see it in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, what did he say? He wasn't just a small little man for the Middle East. When he came in John 8, bearing in mind what I've just read from Isaiah, he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever me follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus was speaking into a ceremony at the time where they used to light candles and they used to dance around Jerusalem. Some even reckon that the priests would set their pajamas alight. Let's make wicks and have a party. It was one night, one city having a light. Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. We've got to dream bigger and bigger and bigger. You can think, Pete, we've only been going three months. Why are you talking about the world? Why? Because I believe this is what we're caught up in. I don't believe it's about us and what we do. It's about us riding on his story. Finding Nemo. Do you ever, any of you seen the cartoon Finding Nemo? You know, he goes and finds his little fish, doesn't he? And at one stage, they said, look, if you can just get in the slipstream, you can just go, can't you? And I sometimes think, we've got to get into the slipstream of God as Christians. Because we might think, oh, God, if we had 10 people this month, oh, that'd be great. Or do we think, oh, God, actually, you're, you're sweeping us along for nations. Do we think, oh, what can I possibly do in my lifetime? Oh, if I work really hard. Or do I think, oh, God, it's about the nations, because this is what he's put in our hearts. In Matthew 12, when it's talking about Jesus, he says, here is my servant, servant whom I've chosen, the one I love in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him. He will proclaim justice to the nations, it says. In his name, the nations will put their hope. So Jesus is not meant to be like a, a small little man that we could say, oh, well, he's Middle Eastern. And, 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 and that was just for those that were interested. If it's your kind of thing. Now Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. The nations are coming to me. And then when he kicked off the church, what did he say? Well, somebody read to us. I think it was Rachel. 
Jesus came to them and said, All authority on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is now, you know, he's risen from the dead. He's just commissioning his disciples. He says, what do I want you to think? I want you to think nations. I mean, in some respect, that's bizarre. I mean, Jesus, he didn't travel far, did he? I mean, he never had a jet plane, did he? I mean, it's not like he flew all around the world. He didn't have the web, but actually he knew there was a commission to go to the nations. And so when he said to the church, what I want you to get excited about, it's the nations. I think we're excited about him going to the nations. You know what I'm saying? It's not just international travel. <laughs> I'm not just got a few brochures here this morning saying I'm about to do a trip of the Holy Land if anyone wants to come with me. It's not that kind of leading. I guess I'm just trying to say it should be in our hearts. You see, if you read Acts, Acts 1 verse 8 explains the whole book. It says, basically, you wait here. When you get the Holy Spirit, you be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And that was the whole picture of the book. I've often read the book of Acts and thought, what happened to Paul? Well, it's irrelevant because actually the whole purpose of the book was the gospels going forward to the ends of the earth. That's why we've got Acts 29 on our text giving. Because there's only 28 chapters in the book of Acts. And the story continues and we're part of it. And actually when the Holy Spirit came upon the church, it was that you would go. And when we believe that we're given the Holy Spirit, not just that we can sit here and have a great meeting, not that we just sit in coffer, Costa for coffee and cake. But I said we can be something to go to the nations. I think if we then look at the last book of the Bible, Revelation, and we think, actually, how does this whole national thing happen? We know from Revelation 7, verse 9, I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people and language standing before the throne and before the lamb they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands and they cried in loud voice salvation belongs to our God United Nations it's not about New York you know I'm saying it's about heaven it's not about could we have a political building and I'm not knocking that where we can get headquarters and try and sort out something actually the nations will be united I believe in heaven because there'll be somebody from every tribe and race and tongue there. Oh, golly, we better start practicing our dancing, some of us. You know what I'm saying? Because I don't think they're going to be you know, the old 80s one clap that we're used to. I mean, goodness gracious, you know what I'm saying? We'll be learning words for all eternity, won't we, as we sing in every tongue. I don't quite know what it's going to be like there. I'm not going to say you've got to learn every language to get into heaven. But I think, oh, what, what an excitement. This is the nations coming together. It makes me realize how big the God is that we follow. And so often I make him too small. I'm a little boy from Sussex, you know what I'm saying? And actually when I follow this God, I think I've got to believe a God of the nations. I want to make this very practical. How do we build a diverse church in a diverse place? We know that there's 172 nationalities in the borough of Ealing. We know that 150 nationalities gave birth here. You say, why is that important? Well, it means obviously they're feeling like they're settling and they haven't just come and passed quickly on. 150 nationalities have given birth in the borough. So therefore, I would want this to be a diverse church. I would want us to have as many different nationalities as we could. I'd love us to have the rich and the poor, the educated, the uneducated. You know what I'm saying? The young and the old. Now, I think that will challenge us. I'm just being really honest. 
What are some of the challenges? The way we decorate our house. Do we own a house? Do we rent a house? The kind of food that we enjoy. And I think that's both ways. You know what I'm saying? How do we really build a church, diverse church? Because, God, what food do we all enjoy together? I had a friend, Rambabu, Indian friend, who said to me, the first time I picked him up from the airport and he's coming to stay at my house because he was preaching at the church, I said, what can I do to make your stay the best I possibly can? He said, give me curry three times a day. It, he said, it is the food of heaven. Now, I quite like curry, so I was quite happy to go along with that. You know what I'm saying? And so he stayed with us for about four or five days. He had, he had curry three times a day. The second time he came to stay, I said, I would really like you to do something English. So I'm going to give you a roast dinner. Oh, no, I can't eat English food. It's far too bland. I said, look, here's Coleman's mustard. You can put it over anything you like. He took a photo. He said, I've had my first ever English dinner. Now, I think, hey, what's that I'm trying to say? We're going to go both ways. I think we've just got to get used to the fact that we're all going to be different. The way we do our hair, where we go on holiday, the kind of music we listen to, the way that we worship, the interests we have in church will be different. I hope they're different. I genuinely do. Because I think, why? We don't need to be squeezed into a mould. We're the nations come together. Now, I'm aware that sometimes there can be some tensions in that. And therefore, I think we just need to be very honest and open with one another. You know, maybe sometimes we'll say something that's offended someone, and we didn't even realise we'd done it. And we just need to say sorry. We need to forgive each other quickly. We need to ask each other's stories. Help me understand a little bit about your culture. Help me understand how you think. Hear my story. Hear your story. We need to be able to laugh together. We need to be free to be ourselves. If you go for loud amens, I'd love loud amens. You know what I'm saying? Let's do it. If you want to dance the way you pray, you feel you've got to be free to do that. I think even the way that we reach others. We want to pray for nations. We don't want to just feel like... I'm a great respecter of, of a lot of other churches that you can learn from. And the danger is, though, that some that have read this book, a guy who built a very big church, read a book and said, you've just got to work out what is your type of person and build a church for that. I totally disagree with that. When I first came to Ealing, someone said, oh, what kind of person are you looking for in Redeemer? I said, anyone who doesn't know Jesus. What they're really thinking is you're going to say a student or a young family or retirees. I want them all in the church. And I think that has got to be something. Why is that? Because I think that's part of the story that we're caught up with. The nations is not a new thing. Joseph here was feeding the nations. I believe that that is a picture. I believe that we've seen here that actually there's a need and a calling upon us, even if it's inconvenient sometimes, to think we're going to reach the nations. How do we make this really practical now? We are going to be praying for some nations. We have got a two-minute video which I hope would just be queued right up for us at the back. And this is something I've taken off of a tier fund website. There's loads of websites that you can look into. Just to explain, we're going to watch this. It's two minutes about the impact of prayer for the nations. And then on the back of this, I'm going to ask us all to get up and move around. And you will see that some of the flags are horizontal. And basically under those, we've got facts about the nations. And I would like us to go round and... There'll be another song playing. It'll last about five minutes. And I'd like us to go around and to pray for as many of these nations as we can in those five minutes. And then we'll come back together. So we're going to watch a video. We're not watching a video for two minutes. But we're going to go straight, therefore, 
to the, have we got the song lined up? Okay, you don't need a video to inspire you to pray. You know how to pray, don't you? So that's great. So why don't you stand up and move yourselves around? That'd be great. Look at these things. And this song should be playing. Tim Hughes, he's got the whole world in his hands. And we will do this for five minutes and then come back together.